the beginning of this interview with Ayoto Ataraxia, I actually mispronounced his last name when I introduced him, which was actually such a sticking point for me, like personally, inwardly, as I'm talking to him, because my last name is so hard to pronounce. It's a bunch of vowels smushed together, T-S-U-E-I, all of my life. I'm like, T is in Tom, S is in Sam, U-E-I. And I've had people say, Tsui, Tsui, Sway, Sui. I've had to correct people all of my life. And so even when I was taking Spanish in school or when I met anybody else, I would really make a point of saying their name correctly because I feel like it's this demonstration of respect and honoring, even if the culture is different, even if the words are different or harder. It was also challenging because, you know, I have this TS sound at the beginning and I never wanted to just be like, oh, just say sway instead of sway. I really wanted that TS sound in there. So many people couldn't do it. But then the tsunami happened and it was on the news all the time. And I heard all of these white people being able to say the TS sound, that sound. And I was like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> How have you been able to do this this whole time? So I apologize to Ayoto during the interview, but I feel like there's, you know, something around names and languages that are such a big deal for people who do come from immigrant parents or do have different cultures that you're trying to blend together and figuring it out without having to let go of parts of your identity and really embracing and honoring all of what makes you who you are. I'm excited in a future interview as well with the sister duo team of Hello Lucky because they talk about that, that they, like me, believe that, you know, there are so many beautiful elements to Asian culture or the Chinese cultures that we grew up with and the Western culture. And if we could blend the two, it could be really such a harmonious balance. But it's going to be a journey to navigate that. So I hope that this conversation with Ayoto today, who is an artist, he worked as a director, a writer, a performing artist, a producer, a poet, and a musician. And he worked with different companies in New York, Apple, you know, now he's living abroad in Germany. And he's the host of Asian Provocation, a podcast that brings stories of humans and their observations all these marginal views and these queer perspectives together. So you'll hear a bit about his journey, how he is still learning how to communicate with his parents and how he's learning how to embrace all of his identity, including exploring, you know, the queer space and what that means for him. And he's studied a lot. You can hear it in the interview of all the books that he's read, all the topics that he's dove into. This interview is probably just a smidge of a much longer conversation that he and I could have had. So if there are any questions, definitely go to the show notes and there'll be as many links as I could include. And if you'd like to hear more from him, you'll have his contact information. Or if there are guests that I have brought on throughout this time that the podcast has been around that you're very curious about, you can always go to patreon.com forward slash fuck saving face and become a member. And I will bring those guests back on and have more frank, open and honest discussions kind of behind the scenes. So without further ado, enjoy today's episode. I'm also here because I really believe in celebrating and honoring marginalized voices by amplifying the platform that they can have. I remember reading something about Barack Obama's administration and how the women felt like they weren't being heard. So one of the techniques that they used was for one of them to speak up and then for the other woman, a fellow colleague to echo what that woman said, and then another one to echo that. And so through the power of numbers and through that sharing and support, 
these voices started being more heard in what were traditionally male-dominated industries. So I hope that today's episode is an opportunity to amplify an LGBTQIA plus voice and that, you know, it is hard. Love is hard. <laughs> if you've ever been in a relationship, it can be really difficult to navigate your own emotions and somebody else's and then to have that clear communication, which if you were raised in an Asian family, you were probably not taught how to talk about your feelings. You were probably not taught how to listen to someone else as they share their feelings and create that safe kind of space. So I hope that this conversation creates that safe space. I hope that, you know, it truly is an opportunity to see that we are all human with all different kinds of preferences. And there's so much beauty in being able to honor and celebrate our differences or our uniqueness or whatever it is that makes us us. And if you find love, however it looks for you, I honor and celebrate that. It is a remarkable thing. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans, especially breaking through any taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast, where we explore all things that are traditionally seen as taboo to break through these topics. I'm really excited to have Ayoto Roxia today. He's the host of Asian Provocation. It's an incredible podcast that I'll let him put into his own words. But today we're going to cover different topics in terms of sex positivity, sex negativity, you know, the LGBTQ plus communities and living internationally as well and what kind of perspective that provides. So Ayoto, can you tell me a bit about yourself? How would you describe yourself? Yeah. Oh, just a small note. It's ataraxia, but no oh, big deal. Sorry. <laughs> ataraxia. Sorry. No worries. How do I identify myself? Mm-hmm. Did you say? Yeah. Like what would you say is your story? Oh, that's a very big, broad question. Let's <laughs> dive into. I'm a person going through life. I would just say that that's as much. I used to have more uh, labels for myself. I would say I'm an artist, or I'm a photographer, or a director. But as time goes on, and so much is changing in our society, and all the different backgrounds, and as a third culture kid, if you want to use that label, that a lot of that stuff started to make less sense as I continue with this journey. So I'm just a person with questions, I would say. Mm, I love that. Can you tell me about what Asian provocation is about? How do you explain that? Yeah, I started the podcast October last year, 2020. It was during, it was several months into the lockdown. There was Black Lives Matter. There was all these issues. And I found myself unable to work because of all the lockdown movement restrictions. And I had a lot of time. And in that time and in the reflection, I've always had issues discussing Asianness and what that means and my relationship to that because it's very complicated for me. I have several different identities. But one thing that was clear was the issue surrounding the subject of diaspora around Asianness. And so I started to ask a lot more questions there and I wanted to speak about my investigations. And Mm -hmm. one of those things, and you probably can relate to this, Judy, but the idea of, for example, for fuck saving face, it's very much this energy. It's, I didn't dare to go into that. I was scared. 
Mm. And the podcast was a way for me to unravel that. And at first, the first iteration or first uh, one of, I don't know if you had this, but to start coming up with a name for the podcast, I, I came up with a, a list, right? With all the mm. different names, trying different things. And one, the previous name I had was The Invisible Other. Mm. And there's a lot there in terms of what I was feeling and understanding, otherness and so on. But I realized another thing, which was I was consciously trying to avoid the discussion of Asian because I didn't fit into Asian. What is Asia anyway? Mm. And I realized that there is this taboo that I had for myself. And I, th- I think, and I had a theory that that was there for others. And so I thought, no, let me go right into it. Let me sit really deep in the fire, so to speak, from Arno Mindel. And I embraced that and decided to start a podcast called Asian Provocation. And that's how I started it. Mm. I love what you said about the invisible other, because before when you and I got into a preliminary conversation about it, we talked about Asian men and how there's just this feeling that it's the kind of invisible gender, invisible group. Can you talk about that and what your experience has been like with that? Yeah, that's a huge, huge discussion. And it doesn't come without certain understanding of danger. And it, mm-hmm. it is, I think, a potential and very necessary discussion that I do believe us as a society really need to go into. Uh, just some background, I've been a very avid reader around subjects of gender, around feminism. And I remember one of the films that started on one of these journeys was the film called The Red Pill. Mm. And it's, I, have, I don't know if you've seen that movie. No, uh, I haven't. You mentioned it in terms it, of the TED Talk. Exactly. Yeah. And she, when she was a self-professed feminist, she wanted to dig into some of these taboo subjects because there were these groups, the men rights, men's rights activists, MRAs, mm-hmm. and they have a lot. It's a very, very taboo subject. Anyway, people can watch the movie themselves and see what they think. I'm not a men's rights activist myself. And I think what was important was that her journey to highlight that topic she found herself in this huge backlash mm. where she realized that there was actually so much hatred for even the discussion about the insecurities and inferiorities of men. Mm-hmm. And I realized going through that, that if I was really to even think about equality or feminism, that a big part was to also examine myself and my relationship with, let's say, if we want to talk about misogyny, if we want to talk about equality, that I realized I had to unpack and really look at it. And a big part of that was realizing that, and as you probably preach as well in your podcast is about vulnerability and, and go through therapy and go and see all of that. Yeah. And so that uncovered a lot in terms of my own sexuality, my own racism, my own homophobia. I grew up in Australia. There's massive homophobia there. And Going into that, I realized I was living in a myth. I, even though I thought I was woke and I was very well read and with all these different subjects, I realized that I haven't really examined myself and I've been telling myself a lot of lies. Mm. And a big part of that was the understanding of what it means to be a man. And secondly, what it means to be an Asian man in diaspora. Mm. So that's where I started to really 
unpack and, and it was horrifying because it was there was just a lot, you know. Mm. I feel like surprisingly for me that a lot of the feedback that I've been getting has been from Asian men who've shared, you know, thank you so much for giving words to the experiences that I've had. It's been a great eye-opening awareness to be reminded that so much of what we experience is just the human condition, but also just how Asian men, especially, you know, haven't necessarily had kind of that forum to speak up. I hope that everybody goes to your Instagram and to your podcast and explores more and dives deeper into their own journey. I didn't ask you at the beginning when you shared that you're somewhat third culture. Can you share what your Asian identity is and a little bit of where you've grown up and where you've lived? Yeah, I was born in Taiwan and my Taiwanese name is De Po Yong and mm. my Mandarin name is Zheng uh, Borong. I've let go of my English rendition of my name because I understood the ugliness of the colonizing way in which people had to, in which my family and I had to integrate into a very, into a white Australia. Mm. And that's where we immigrated in the 90s, early 90s. And because Taiwan at the time, as you know, was in a, what do you call that? A military. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that was where I was born. And I, but I was only there for six, seven years. So I didn't really have too much understanding. And this is the interesting thing about the culture kids, particularly I find people who have migrated around that age, around six or seven. And I've been noticing a very specific observation of behavior and personality sets, depending on these different ages in which people migrate. So that that was where I that was the age when we went to Australia and then I grew up in Australia. I was very much integrated over time, but part of that process I had to learn and internalize a lot of racism in as a form of adaptation, as a form to be a part of a white racist, white supremacist society. And that took me some time to unpack as well. And then I, part of my adult life, I lived in Thailand and also China. Mm. And China was a really interesting thing because it was in some ways, if you will, a kind of homeland, but also not because mm. in Taiwanese, there's a lot of anti-China, mainland China propaganda. Yep. I lived it's in cool. China as well, <laughs> China and right. Taiwan. So I had that same similar experience. Exactly. So that's pretty heavy stuff. And mm -hmm. as an adult, I started to dig into the history of that. What does it mean? What is Taiwan? What is China? Where does my family come from? Where, what's my roots? And I started to dig into that and I followed my own family tree and going all the way back to, to Zheng Sengong. I don't know if you know this man. Mm -mm. And no. so we're, he's, the, he's, one, he's one of the characters of or important figures that has that was supposedly one of the founders of Taiwan, like in, mm. I believe in the 1400s, I could be wrong, I have mm. to double check. And what was interesting about him was I, to discover, so we prayed to this guy and there's sculptures mm. of this man and this persona. Uh, but what I discovered looking back and tracing back, and he was born in Japan of a samurai family and he was mm. Japanese and his mother's Japanese. 
But at the time, he understood himself to be a Ming loyalist from China. Hmm. And so he, he was, his whole life was wanting to regain the, the power of the Ming dynasty and all that people and so on. He didn't really see himself as Japanese, whatever that means at that time. And so he followed this, he created this whole rebellion and went and fought, but he lost. And there's a kind of parallel to the Chiang Kai-shek story. And he also retreated to this island of Taiwan. He was the one who kicked off the colonizing Dutch from the island, the hmm. Formosa island that was known at the time. Mm -hmm. And he tried to regain his strength and regain his power, but he never did. And there's many theories about that. But he eventually settled and all the generations that followed. And we are from, we are the direct ancestors. So he, sorry, he's the direct ancestor of my family. What I found interesting about this story was just this idea about what is Taiwan and what is culture, what is identity. And I realized that all of this is just temporal and it's all relative. Mm. And so it seemed also absurd to be screaming out saying, hey, I'm Taiwanese or no, I'm Chinese or I'm this or that. So that was a big part where I decided to let go of that. And I didn't want to participate anymore. And I think a big influence was also my upbringing. I, I had a lot of, I was um, in a Christian school as well as a lot of heavy Buddhist philosophies in my family. So hmm. I always was, there was an understanding about, we had friends who became monks and I remember my parents didn't really tell me that this was this other person. So one day there was this person that we knew, and then suddenly this person just became a monk, and I was too young to follow, but they, and then they, one day they would say, oh, say hello to the reverend or whatever the title is in, in Mandarin. And I was thinking, but that's that other person, that, that woman, now this, they're this person, you know, no pronouns, no old name, no civilian clothing. And I always thought, well, that's kind of really interesting to like not participate anymore in like human hmm. pain issues. Hmm. So I'm curious because you had mentioned that you changed your name, which I'm again, sorry that I mispronounced. And I just feel like name is such an interesting thing. You know, growing up, my last name has three vowels in a row, which is really hard for people to pronounce. And then the TS sound they could never get. And so it's a subtle way I feel of some of the bigger topics that you've discussed of internalized racism, of, you know, kind of that fawning response of making fun. Even now, these days, I catch myself, I was just talking to my neighbor the other day and just catching myself about my own perpetuation of stereotypes to make light of a situation. So I think that this journey of identity is continual. And there's so many big topics that you brought up that, like you said, there's such big questions. We could go on for hours about it, but I'm curious about the name that you have now. How did you come to that? Yeah, names are really important. And it's not easy for people who are in the hegemon to understand why that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Because we are living in, especially right now, at least we're speaking English, we're dealing with a Eurocentric Latin-based environment. Right. So that default, we have to understand, and there's a huge history and culture that comes with that. But for those of us who move from one system to another, that's a big pressure. And that's something that becomes a judgment of a person because you don't come with that same lineage and that default understanding. 
So my name was really fascinating in terms of my process, because again, I wasn't born with my current name. Mm-hmm. And my previous English name iteration, my dead name, was given to me as a, and we were told during immigration that it would probably be better if you assimilated and choose mm. a, an English name, a Latin name. Mm. And we flipped through a book of generic English names and came on one that sounded most like me. And we mm. chose that. And I never felt close to that. I never felt connected to that. It has nothing to do with my Chinese name, nor my Taiwanese name. And I read, when I was growing up in Australia, I was also very inspired by a lot of Aboriginal stories and cultures. And I really love the idea that they, when they became an adult, they go through a ceremony and they choose a new name for themselves that is different to the name that they were given as a child. And that name they would choose based on what they felt connected to for their life purpose and what they felt themselves to be. And I felt that this process to be hugely inspiring. And there's also some relation to what Malcolm X, I'm a big fan of Malcolm X and a lot of his writings. And although I, I don't identify as black, I don't have a relationship with Islam, but his understanding, his journey, I, I can really understand his struggles. And one of those things is that and religion was a big part for him as well. And he said, well, you know, we need to have a religion for the black man. And that's where he reintroduced Islam for himself and for his community. There's a big discussion about that and you can look into that. But I realized for me, though, that all of those things are an influence. And if I subscribe to another culture's system, I need to find my own position in that and not just be put into a subservient position, which I find a lot of Asians in diaspora particularly are forced into. We're forced into a form of servitude and all the history that comes with that. So I wanted to self-liberate myself and control and define my own narrative. And Mm -hmm. so in a shamanic process, that's where I arrived with my current name. Mm, that's so powerful because, you know, I remember growing up and going to Chinese school every Saturday and then all of a sudden the Wei Giles system was introduced. So pinging and like everything was spelled differently and my last name would have been spelled differently. And I think what you're saying too is you're giving people permission to go through those rites of passage to find what works for them. Because, you know, if you think about it, like we didn't have a say in the name that we were given when we were born. And especially if you've emigrated or, you know, had to become the goal potentially is to assimilate for a lot of immigrants in other cultures, that there's all this kind of bastardization or just doing whatever you can to fit in with the dominant majority. So I love that story of how you came to the name that you have. And what is the meaning of the name that you came through with the shamanic process? So Ayoto is a a name, just it's more of a sound. And knowing what I know about my ancestors and that journey, it's not Japanese, but it could sound Japanese for the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more of a feeling and I, it's, it's not at all Japanese. It's just a sound. And I just like the phonetic and the visual aspect in, in a very somatic relation I have mm-hmm. with that particular sound and that particular name that I can own myself mm-hmm. and that can, it, it powers me and that's my relationship to it. And ataraxia is a Greek word. And I thought as much as I try to escape Eurocentrism and I try to 
bring on whatever this so-called Asian-ness, I realized that's also not me because my entire adult life, except for the five years I lived in China and two years I lived in Thailand, five years in Taiwan, but actually most of my experience and culture and facing has been in a Eurocentric or some kind of Greek or Latin system. And so I wanted to have something that reminds me of that. And I came across this word, ataraxia, which is a Greek term that was first used in the Greek philosophy that defines a state of serene calmness. And it was something that I wanted to have as a personal reminder, as a personal token that I could know that I could hold on to within myself. And it's something that internally I can feel rooted towards because there's not much else I have in my life that can give me that kind of security. Hmm, I love that. One of the things that you also just mentioned is the shamanic process. And one of the things that you and I talked about previously was that kind of expansion of consciousness through different, you know, psychedelics or different types of substances that are used in ceremony. Can you speak about your experience with that? Yeah, it's still an ongoing research. I've Being always very curious with that, and again, I I grew up with a a Christian, I went to a Christian private school, but Mm -hmm. I also had, like you, Julie, the Chinese schools on the weekends. (laughs) Like my mother is a huge tiger mom and uh, (laughs) shout out to my mom. Uh, (laughs) So I went through a lot of different, I, I learned a lot of religious rites and different practices. And I hated it as a child. It mm. it was unbearable. I did so much temple experiences, both Christian and Buddhist. And they, my parents also followed different uh, religious leaders. I realize now, though, that a lot of that stuff still comes back to me and I understand and it, I connect to it easily. And it's not something of a exotic thing. It was very, it, it was very much my culture that I was in. But as an adult, you know, in my teenage years, I, as part of my rebellious phase, I would experiment in all kinds of drugs. And I think that base, that rebellious phase was helpful for me to remove the taboo that I have with substances. And as I got older, I understood the cultural and social makeup that different cultures might have an aversion to all these things. But I was able to unpack that. And... Later in life, in the last few years, actually, uh, I started to, and you know, now there's definitely much more access. So I would discover different people that would provide these things. And I also would read a lot about people that facilitate these journeys and the, how that is constructed. And again, I, I am my, by no means a shaman. I have no idea. I just read and I go through these things. But I definitely have enjoyed the benefits of these different things. I guess a big part of it is my parents are very, I don't want to condescend them by saying superstitious, but in my mind as a child, that's what it felt like, especially in in, quote unquote, Western or Australian society, the scientific method and so on. All of the ethnic cultural things seems to be just wow-woo and bizarre. And what's doubly irritating is now that Orientalism has become more of a trend and uh, capitalism is now milking a lot of these things. It just becomes another extension of capitalism. So with 
a lot of these learnings and with these drugs and plants uh, and medicines, I start to realize that it's you can't just extract those things and go for a trip without the wisdoms of things before. Now, I guess a big part of it was like my own journey to forgive my parents because my parents were also really wanting to share that and pass some of those knowledge, but I couldn't deal with it because it wasn't scientific in my mind. Mm. But only now I realize that there is also limitations of the scientific process. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I start to get more interested and look at the properties and look at different literature and things that's passed on by different cultures and some of their shamans. How did you find out about the shamanic experience? What was your experience with that like? I think for a lot of people, you know, this could be completely foreign. I know it wasn't until my probably early 30s that I started even hearing about things like ayahuasca and whatnot. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was very scary for me too. So the first, you know, I, I've had experiences with, let's say, marijuana or mm -hmm. psilocybin, but a lot of that was in a more party context or having fun or getting wasted. Mm -hmm. And over time, I would start to hear or come into contact with different people and they would provide different things. But when it came to, let's say, particularly, yeah, ayahuasca or psilocybin, some of the stories of that was horrifying for me. I thought, right. oh God, I, that what is this interdimensional product <laughs> or, you know, voices? I, I don't want to lose my mind and all these stories. And But a lot of that phobia, were, I, I now understand, is based on fear and mm. ignorance. Mm. Now, in I'm currently in Berlin, and, and in Berlin, I started to go, I, I was online dating. Mm -hmm. I was dating online. This, this is probably a better way to say it. <laughs> and, uh, I, I was coming out of a very long-term monogamous relationship, and there was a lot of undealt with problems in my own life, which then bled into every other aspect of my life. And uh, part of what helped was coming into contact with very good supply of psilocybin. Mm. And I thought, I didn't think much of it, and that wasn't any form of um, shamanic process, but the substance itself was so good that it liberated a lot of things in me. And so I was also going online and dating and seeing different people. And I, was, I, I came into a new city. I, I moved from New York mm -hmm. and I came to Berlin. And I met I met a Shibari master on online dating, hmm. and I had no desire or curiosity or interest except that it aesthetically looked cool. There was you know certain pictures online, or, but I never really cared for it to be honest. I mean now it's a huge commercial enterprise. I just went to a workshop for it. <laughs> it's it's going everywhere, and it's very yeah. there's a lot there. But at the time, I had no idea, and I had no idea that this person that I'm going on a date with is a huge master and has studied a lot, and I just thought, okay, maybe I could get laid. <laughs> 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 and I meet her, and then she's there, and she introduces me to all her friends, and I was just in a very blissful state because uh, I was taking psilocybin as well. Yeah, I, I found myself in a situation because... 
psilocybin for me has the effect of removing, reducing dramatically my neurosis, neurotic tendencies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just become on a much easier flow. And suddenly I couldn't believe myself that I was in the world where I didn't feel that kind of sexual racism that I experienced in New York or other mm -hmm. places. And I started to, yeah, I found another lover there. I met another lover and I was just invited to all these things. And, and I was in a kind of sexual, rev personal sexual revolution compared to the very rigid and very limited experience that I had before. And one of the lovers that I met, she introduced me to a man named Felix Ruckert. Mm -hmm. And he's a, he's a good friend of mine now. And he organizes a lot of uh, festivals and events and communities around BDSM and sex positivity. Mm. Uh, I had no idea about any of this. I just thought, okay, this person that I'm sleeping with or I'm having some flirtatious things with, she says, you should just come to this thing, she said to me. And I said, uh, okay. And uh, I go there. I had no idea. She said, don't read anything about it. Don't worry, just, just come. And I thought, is this some kind of cult? Am I going <laughs> to get you know, sacrificed. Uh, but he was, you know, Felix has the video and actually you can, there's a link I can share with you here. He has this yeah. talk explains a lot about creating sex positive spaces and his philosophies. And at the time I've read certain books like the red queen, or I don't know, so the poly entry gateway, poly sex positive books, uh, feminist books as well. And, uh, you know, they were all theoretical. But here was a person that was practicing in a very advanced level with a lot of different people and wisdoms around the world. And he was sharing some of these talks. And I thought, well, okay, I didn't get sacrificed, but um, <laughs> the discussions were very interesting. And um, my lover at the time was saying, well, did you enjoy that? I said, yeah, that was interesting. And he said, okay, you should come to Rome. I said, uh, okay, what is it? Said, Don't worry about it. Just go online. <laughs> Buy this thing. Don't look at the website. It's terrible, but trust me, it's good. Anyway, good, uh, good. Don't go to places or events that has good websites. They probably don't have really good stuff, but this is one of those people, things that is organized by an older generation that has no idea about the internet, but the, the stuff is good. Don't worry about it. Just, just come. And I said, uh, okay. You know, this was like my yes phase where I just said, mm -hmm. fuck it. Fuck all of the previous, you know, expectations. I, I already, you know, I got rid of my studio in New York. I sold my car. That was the time when I literally took the, my car to the uh, to a dealership, gave them the thing, they cut me a check, and I took a cab to the to the airport and got out. <laughs> so you know, I, I was just say, "Fuck it," you know. Let's what, what what could happen. So I go to Rome, and I had no idea at the time, but I was there a bit early with some of the organizers because I was friends with them. But I at the time I didn't realize that I was surrounded by some of the best and most advanced practitioners in, in the world of BDSM, tantrica, uh, uh, body work, all these kind of mm -hmm. things. And yeah, I, you could say the rest is history, but that was kind of the start of my diving into that world. And I was mm -hmm. shown that whole thing by experience. And yeah, and I continue to take my psilocybin and, and in these events, they call it explore events, it's a lot, but I could only describe it as imagining cramming decades of therapy into a weekend because mm. they would invite a very amazing assortment of people to come and give workshops, every, everything from psychologists to opera singers to 
Olympic swimmers, divers, and they combine everything. They they play with everything, and mixing everything. And in the in the foundation of a sex positive space, people are questioning and creating play spaces.、Um, and that was when I realized I had so much construct about what is masculinity, what is dominance, who is a submissive person, what are all these structures, and I was unofficially because officially they say you know don't take drugs. This is the, they, they also have to be careful. It's not, it's not a drug event, but I was personally medicating myself with psilocybin at the time, and、um, it just helped me open, have a very extremely open mind, and it just exploded my my psyche. So that's a kind of long-winded story of an introduction to where I've been <laughs> heavily. And you know, I mean, that feedback of it feels like like decades of therapy that you jam in like a short amount of time. That's something that I've heard from a lot of different people who've experienced these, you know, psilocybin or psychedelic type of drugs. I also want to be responsible and say that everyone has their own journey, and if that is something that you're interested in exploring, then to be sure that you're doing it within a trusted space, the environment and the shamanic leader and anybody who's facilitating that experience does create a big impact. So for anybody who's curious and to learn more, and I'll include the links because I'm really curious about the Felix person who you mentioned, but I think it flows into one of the big questions that I wanted to ask you. You know your podcast on your Instagram. It you say hosting a queer Asian diaspora podcast, and you've talked about sex positivity and BDSM and all of that, and how you living internationally has given you an opportunity to see how certain cultures are sex negative. I didn't even realize the term sex positive until I would say like the last five years or so. So I'd love for you to share what that means to you and. What that journey has been like for you as an Asian man as well? Oh, another big question. Yeah, right. This <laughs> <laughs> one star.、Um, yeah, the the idea of sex positivity and for me as a queer person, it's an understanding of myself that I've no idea what I actually want or desire or any of those things. But it's a slow process and journey through that. So it's the first thing that was easy for me to understand was that I was brought into a very sex-negative, homophobic society.、Uh, I was listening to some of your previous podcast episodes, and just this common discussion about sex education、mm-hmm. as a Asian in diaspora、uh, with Asian parents, and like they don't know what to do or say. No, and, <laughs> you know. So, so that was a huge. Realization for myself, and even you know, I read all these different research and studies, and they say, "Oh, yeah, there was this one research that showed." And this is again like the limitation of the scientific method. Not that I don't agree with it, but it's important to see the limitations of it. So one study was that they measured the bodily reactions to certain stimulus between men and women, and they noticed that women could be potentially Aroused by a huge variation of things, anywhere from not just men or women, but even animals or inanimate objects or situations and concepts.、Mm-hmm. But for men, it was very clear if somebody was more sexually attracted to a man or a woman, 
and that if they proclaim themselves to be gay or bi or hetero, they seem to be very close to that. Like they don't just be, they're not just aroused by anything. And so the, the conclusion and the theory was that, and the hypothesis was that perhaps men are more stubborn or tend to be one way or another. But what I learned and realized for myself and coming to some of these communities and experiencing some different communities and people in Europe that had different education and different upbringing, that a lot of these things are completely thrown out the window. And the, the more I learn, the more I read, the more I see that it, it just depends, like, what is gay? What, and so I, I see the importance for myself, the identity of queerness, because I might be quote-unquote hetero, but actually I realized that's just my conditioning. Mm. And I see so much other people that, depending on their conditioning, don't have a lot of these issues. And I think that's where the discussion about some of the questions that is uncovered by men's rights activists, that we need to start questioning what is masculinity, what is being a man, and what is homosexuality. And there's another big argument that questions the recent concept of being gay and that it's actually a big mimicry to hetero concepts. Hmm. So other periods of homosexual history will see that there is no concept of top and bottom, that that concept is a derivative of the misogyny that is in cis society. Hmm. And all these other examples, right? Like the easy ones, right? Like ancient Greece, man-boy love hmm. is very common. The same in samurai history which the Japanese nationalists would try to really hide away. That's some of the things I've been exploring and some of the guests that we've been talking about. And another thing is if you look at history of Islam, that, for example, in the 19th century the, in Constantinople, that the homosexuality was very, it was accepted by law, including the love between a man and a boy, in, in the sense that the love and appreciation of boys from a man with a beard with a boy with no facial hair. So that was the definition. So that was normalized for that society. And so I started to think, God, like, I am just a product of my society. Mm. And this, this society, the so-called white Australia, which came into being only in 1901, why should I subscribe to that limitation? And on top, even if I want to subscribe to the quote-unquote Eurocentric ideals, here in Germany, in Berlin, they have a whole nother concept. So I couldn't hold on to anything anymore. Nothing was static. Everything was constantly in, in dynamic movement. So I stopped trying to be hetero or cis or whatever things. And for me, queer is a beautiful concept just as being an, something of an outside. Mm, there's just so much <laughs> to unpack there. Have you had any sort of discussion with your parents about this? And I mean, I think the reason that I ask is because I imagine that for someone listening to this who is on that journey of exploration, if you were raised by tiger parents, as you and I were, that it's there's just so such a strong impression of what's right and wrong and what's acceptable and not. And given that primal connection of that feeling of, well, if my parents don't accept me or my family of origin doesn't accept me, you know, that what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm completely abandoned? Does that mean that, you know, I won't be able to thrive? There's so many different elements and layers to that, but I'm just curious as to in your own journey, have you been able to 
yeah, have conversations about that or connect about that? Or is it like, there are plenty of people that I know who are just like, it's too hard to have a conversation about anything real with my parents. So I'm just going to leave it alone <laughs> and not go there. That's a huge, huge part. Yeah. The, the difficulty with Asian tiger parents and my own relationship with my parents has been a, a huge chapter. And I, I do think that it, it, there is a, it is a kind of corner piece of the difficulties and the journeys uh, mm-hmm. of, of which I'm going through. And, and I think it's, 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 a, it's a journey that requires both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so my own relationship with them has been very, very difficult. You know, you, you might be able to relate to this, but when I was young, I don't like to be sick, mm-hmm. not because I don't want to be uh, sick or vulnerable, but because if I'm sick, I would get yelled at mm-hmm. for not taking care of myself yeah. or <laughs> doing what you told me to do. See, I told you, you didn't wear enough clothes. I mean, we live in Australia. Yep. It's so hot, mm-hmm. but they were so obsessed with, oh, you see you're drinking cold water mm-hmm. or you're eating this or drinking that. And you see, you didn't. La, da, la, da, la. And so I developed this phobia of being honest and opening up to them because mm-hmm. the truth will just produce. There wasn't a kind of empathetic understanding. They just wanted things. They wanted the problems to go away. They wanted to, mm-hmm. they wanted me to bypass the pain that they knew was coming for me. Mm-hmm. And if one looks into Buddhism, I mean, the, 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 the story of Buddha was also this concept, right? That his parents, the, the, the kings and queens of the place that he was born, a prince, but his parents couldn't allow him to see and experience pain and suffering until one day Buddha himself walked out of the city gates and observed death for the first time, and he couldn't handle it. And he started asking questions. So that was a bit of my relationship with my parents that they couldn't bear seeing me going through pain. And when I did, they would internalize almost as if they would go through the pain themselves. Mm. So that was the the foundation and construct and the, the difficulty. And in one of your previous conversations, I had the same thing where I realized I didn't share the same language with them, even though we all speak Taiwanese, Mandarin, English, but the, I, I'm speaking of the language of the culture or the, the shared worldview. Yeah. So yeah. our base construction was so apart that it takes so much for us to, to discuss. And a lot of times our conversations would end in massive fights and frustrations. Yep. I, I can't last more than, I don't know, 20 minutes. Because- yeah. <laughs> Very superficial, like, did you have dinner yet? Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. I was just, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I would either, I have to choose either to lie and come up with a fictional story or just skip it or, you know, or if I go into it, I know this is going to be a huge, huge deal. And then we're going to sit here and have a huge discussion. And yep. it's not, the odds aren't great, aren't great in terms of mm-hmm. coming out with a solution. But over time, I would say that I've also gotten older and so have they. Mm-hmm. and their own journey in Buddhism. Uh, and I, I don't know exactly what journeys they're going through, but I see also some changes and softening and their ability to listen and to apologize. And I also had to develop my own self, right? To I learned and uh, read about the process of with parents and children that to stop 
having this parent-child conversation in relationship. Mm. Mm. And I, I requested them that we start having adult-to-adult conversations. Mm. And one of those things that, um, in, that you guys, in, in the previous episode, you talked about was the difficulty in trying to understand cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that term because, again, back to my original argument, like what is culture? These right. artificial constructs that is limited to a time and place. Right. So I don't see it as a cultural thing that, oh, you have your culture, I have my culture. What is culture? I, I, I have so many different cultures, but I do see that certain things will move us towards violence and mm-hmm. certain things will help us resolve things and improve our relationship and increase communication. So that was what I tried to move us towards. And then at the same time, trying to be my own therapist with my parents. <laughs> I'm also a child of them and trying to have this conversation, but these are the slow steps over the years. And since starting the podcast, I think it was a very interesting experience because I had a conversation with another friend that talked about coming out to his parents. Mm -hmm. And I had a very heartwarming story that somebody said, said that after they heard my podcast and episode that they themselves, same day, came out to their parents and I thought, oh my God, wow. wow. Like, I, wow. I haven't even gotten to that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I said to myself that, you know, in an un- semi-unconscious manner that this project mm. is a way for me to be able to speak to my parents indirectly and to mm. profess and come out uh, slowly the complexities of my life because I can't say it in, in, in a, what do you call that, in a, in a first person yeah. with them directly. But I have it all transcribed so that they could translate it. And it's all there. I mean, they might have to do a bit of work. And <laughs> I do ask them. And sometimes I think I ask them to say, hey, um, did, you, did you listen to my podcast? And uh, they, my dad said something. He said, um, oh, yeah, yeah. And he tried to shrug it off. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. <laughs> and not, uh, yeah. And then another time he said, he said to me, he said, you know, I have to say, you're very good, very articulate. Mm. And I realized that this is like one of the few times in my life that my dad has ever given me a direct compliment, like mm. a really honest, like, you never said like, I mean, I think he's tried with like the understanding of like, you know, oh, Aussies do this, like, oh, I love you. And we try to have hug and it's really weird. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this was the first time I felt really seen or heard and loved and mm. really appreciated. And he says, you know, I come to realize that you have so much experience and that I can't even come close to some of your experiences, what you're saying. And he didn't say I'm proud of you, but I could actually feel that kind of pride in him and that kind of closeness. So that really changed a lot in our relationship. That's remarkable. I mean, the last like five to 10 minutes, as you've been sharing, I've just been sitting here silently nodding my head being like, yep, that's exactly my same experience. And you articulated it so well. So I'm going to echo the compliment that your dad shared. But I think that everything that you're expressing, I mean, I've, I've been listening to Barack Obama's book and he says like, as a leader who's worked with different nations, you can even see from the nation state that like the nation just wants to be seen and heard and valued. So it's like a very core fundamental human need, which I forget who or why it came about in conversation. But when I was in my twenties, I was walking around Santa Monica with a friend and she said, I think it's remarkable that any two people 
can get along. Because if you think about all of the individual experiences that have created you and crafted you and your internalization or interpretation of the different experiences that you've had, even though we can have similarities, everything's so unique that two people to come together to have some sort of relationship is remarkable. And I think that in your sharing of these stories and in your experience of you becoming you and your parents becoming themselves, that it further reflects like what a beautiful kind of tapestry that is and how complicated it can be. And, and I don't think that there's going to be a point where we're ever going to quote unquote solve it um, or we're going to clean it up. But that story that you shared about how your parents would get upset at you for getting sick, it was the exact same thing as me. I didn't tell my parents that I needed glasses for the longest time because I thought that they were going to blame me that I was reading in the dark or whatever other reasons they told me that if I didn't listen to them, this consequence is going to happen. But I think you're being able to pinpoint that ultimately it leads to this fear of pain and, you know, the boundarylessness with, with which I think a lot of Asian parents have with their children. We weren't allowed to close the door. We weren't allowed to lock the door and everything was shared so openly in very right. often inappropriate ways. But that, that sharing of pain, I think in that collectivist culture is so very like part of the fabric of being Asian almost. So I think that that differentiation individuation is so huge. It's what the therapist that I spoke with in a previous episode has shared as well, that that is such a challenge. So I think that, you know, these expressions of love and care are different and we're influenced by the cultures that we were raised in or by the whatever external factors that we took on. So I think that everything that you shared was so valuable and so meaningful because I feel like so many people will relate. And, you know, again, I hope that someone who's listening to this feels seen and heard in the shared experiences that you and I've had and also just you telling your story. So I'm curious, I have two closing questions. One, you're very well-read and very well-studied. Are there certain books or resources that you would recommend to anybody who's curious about diving deeper, things that have really made an impression on you that you'd love for people to look into? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a, well, there's a lot, and I, these are just the first ones that comes to mind. But when it comes to the question about psychedelics and spirituality, I would say one thing that has helped me a lot, which is the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm. And it's very, it's, it's super important in terms of understanding and, and going deep into the idea of death, which is something very under-discussed in our current society. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely one recommendation. Another is, I, would, I love the book uh, from Esai Hayakawa, which is not to be confused with the first Hollywood superstar who's actually an Asian-American, a Japanese-American man by the same name, who was so popular with the entire industry and women loved him, but then he was so much of a heartthrob that intimidated white men uh, passed law to forbid the use of any Asian man in a love story. Huh. And so that's again, part of the racist history and sexual racism that we have forced, been forced to uh, take on. But another man by the same name, Hayakawa, S.I. Hayakawa, has a book called Language and Thought and Action. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, of course, like Noam Chomsky. And, and, but Noam Chomsky, is, it's a very heavy read if you want to have, mm -hmm. if you want to pass out and fall asleep. But uh, <laughs> this book on linguistics is very, very helpful. That really helps the mind to navigate thought 
And mm. it's a, he was a Canadian born Asian that became a senator in the United States. But this book is, I think it was written in the 60s, but still in a very simplistic, simple way, but clear. Mm. Uh, and I think it's important to have these kind of basic structures to think before diving into any other books. And then, you know, when it comes to like sexuality and all these other things, and they, I think they're building blocks that can come in later. But I think these fundamental basics of thought, I think is really helpful and important. That's great. Thank you so much. And the last question that I have that I ask every guest who's been on the show is in this idea of fuck saving face and breaking through taboos and, you know, really shifting our mindset around certain things. What's one thing that you would say to fuck saving face about? I would say just fuck it in general. In the, in the <laughs> word, great big Lebowski, um, I think <laughs> it's important to not take these constructs and myths so seriously. And it's important for us to allow certain myths to die. And another thing that really helped me was from my friend, Tom Gilroy. He told me when I was going through so much struggles and frustrations, he says, well, I think he took that, he stole that from Dalai Lama, but uh, let go of the cactus. Mm. And that mm. was something that changed my life so much. And I think that's very much in the, in the, view of fuck saving face is that he keeps reminding me you're already in pain mm. and there's nothing more you can do that is going to get you out of it except just to accept that mm. so mm. i would say just fuck it <laughs> the, the truly new beginnings will come from accepting that thought that's wonderful. Thank you. And if people want to follow up with you and continue on your journey, how can they connect with you? You can find me on Asian Provocation. It's available on all podcast catchers. You can search for Asian Provocation on Instagram or Twitter, and you can drop me a line there. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from more people uh, and open for new uh, journeys and people, whatever they're into, also loving a new conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Judy. Well, that's it. As always, I love hearing from you. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's fuck saving face without the you. And if you have any thoughts, any comments, any questions or concerns, I often ask this about the people closest in my life. Do you have any, you know, questions, comments, concerns, any feedback? <laughs> like I'm a little, you know, feedback box like in Ted Lasso <laughs> that Nate the Great designed. Also, if you were one of my friends right now, you would have heard me talk about Ted Lasso because I'm obsessed with that show. I love how feel good it is. Anywho, ever since I started publishing articles years and years ago, I would get emails from strangers all around the world. And it really, truly means so much to me. I actually print a lot of them out and I put them on a praise wall in my walk-in closet so that when I walk in and any time that I have doubts about myself or whatever it is that I'm doing, I look at the black and white copies of the words that people have sent and remind myself that the work that I'm doing is purposeful and it does make a difference. So if that's a helpful tip for you and you're ever questioning your purpose or moving forward in the pursuit of your dreams, which is ultimately what this podcast is all about, is embracing who you are, what you want to do, regardless of the external influences around you causing more doubt or whatnot. I encourage you to save those text messages that you get with the encouraging words from your friends and screenshot them or emails and print them out and create your own praise wall. See you in the next episode for our mindfulness practice. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and know someone in your life who might also benefit from hearing this episode, please feel free to share it with them. Also, if you'd like to support our show, you can make a one-time donation at fucksavingface.com or you can make a recurring donation at patreon.com forward slash fucksavingface. That's fuck without the U. Subscribe today to stay tuned for all future episodes.